Jesus welcomes you and we welcome you. Whether you're online or here in person, whether you're a visitor or member, we're glad you're here. We hope you'll make this church your home. The shot heard around the world, the shot that led to the American Revolutionary War, which led to the uniting of the United States of America. It was the night of April 18, 1775, and hundreds of British troops set off from Boston towards Concord, Massachusetts, in order to seize weapons and ammunition stockpiled there by the American colonists. Early the next morning, the British reached Lexington, where approximately 70 Minutemen had gathered on the village green. Suddenly, someone fired a shot. Different ones will tell you that they know which one it was, but it's mostly uncertain which side fired, but we know that a melee ensued. When the brief clash ended, eight Americans lay dead and at least an equal amount were injured, while only one redcoat was wounded. The British continued on to nearby Concord where that same day they encountered armed resistance from a group of patriots at the town's North Bridge. Gunfire was exchanged, leaving two colonists and three redcoats dead. Afterward, the British retreated back to Boston, skirmishing with colonial Minutemen along the way and suffering a number of casualties. And so, the Revolutionary War had begun. The incident at the North Bridge was memorialized later by Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1837 with his poem called The Concord Hymn, whose opening stanza is, by the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here the once embattled farmers stood and fired the shot that was heard around the world. Well, today we look at a story that we should never get tired of hearing. Much like the shot that began the Revolutionary War, it's a story that Jesus himself said must be heard around the world, wherever the gospel is to be preached. That first shot led to a revolution and eventually to freedom for the patriot colonists. Mary's shot of unselfish love represented the love of Christ for the entire human race, poured out and broken more than was necessary. The agape love of God and, I think, the faith response of humanity back to God for his great love. And that faith response will eventually lead to the ultimate revolution and freedom from selfishness and sin. Her fragrant deed unfolded at the house of a Pharisee. King Jesus was there anointed and a sinner was set free. So here we are and time is running out in the hourglass, the sands are quickly running out. We're nearing our Lord Jesus' return. And indeed, a revolution is coming. 
a revolution of agape love. Seen, first as we look to the cross and see it, and then it's applied to our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for pouring out all of heaven in one gift, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he didn't just die for good boys and girls, for good men and women. He died for all, for sinners, for enemies. And that is the true essence of agape love. And so today, please come especially close to each one. Speak to our hearts and minds from this tremendous story, which you said must be told in the whole world, wherever the gospel is preached. Send your spirit now. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can turn to Luke chapter 7 as we look at the story of Mary Magdalene. Now, this story is recorded in Matthew 26. We read it there. Um, That was our scripture reading. It's in Mark 14. It's in Luke 7. That's where we're going, verse 36, Luke 7, 36. It's also in John, chapters 11 and 12. Some will say that those, all those stories aren't exactly connected, not the same Mary. But I believe it is the same Mary and the same story. And that Luke would be remiss if he did not uh, put in his gospel the story that Jesus said was to be told around the world. And so we go to Luke chapter 7 the story that is to be heard around the world. Now, we're going to get down to the main players in the story, which are mainly Jesus and Simon. And who else? Mary, right? (laughs) Mary Magdalene. That's what it's primarily about. Those are the main three players, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes leading up to this, right? It's almost six days before Jesus would go to Jerusalem. There would be that triumphant entry, right? So it's, it's just before that time. And there you can see Bethany and Jerusalem. Jesus would go to Bethany, would go to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus as it was his custom to do. You know, there's some places you can just go and just kind of hang out, right? You can let your hair down, so to speak. No pun intended, but that's what she'll do later. But you know, you can really be yourself and Jesus could do that here uh, among friends in Bethany. So that's where he would be, but not two miles away. The Pharisees would be scheming for his life. They knew they needed to get rid of this Jesus, but they had a problem. He was extremely popular. They couldn't just get rid of him. They needed to do it underhandedly, and that's exactly what they had planned to do. However, they had another problem. There was this guy who had been dead four days who was raised to life. What was his name? Lazarus, right? So not only is Jesus a problem, but this guy that was dead that is now alive is a problem that's going to come back to bite them unless they take care of business too. So they're not only wanting to take Jesus out, they also want to take Lazarus out. 
By the way, there's a little book called The Desire of Ages. Chapter 62 goes into this and all those four gospels also. But if you want to uh, read further, you'd, you'd, be, um, you'd be blessed to do so, I'm sure. So they not only want to take Jesus out, but Lazarus out. So that's what they're plotting in Jerusalem while Jesus is now in Bethany. And he's in Bethany, and he's at the home of one Pharisee whose name is Simon, who used to be a leper. Let's look on to Luke chapter 7. This could also be called Mary's act of faith. And like I say, I'm going to be taking parts from the other three Gospels, but we'll just stick with Luke as we roll through this narrative. You don't need an outline. It's a story, right? Just follow along with Mary's act of faith. Luke chapter 7. So here Jesus is. He's at the home of Simon. And again, the other Gospels tell us this just says a Pharisee, but it was Simon, Simon the leper. Look at verse 36, Luke 7. I've got the King James this morning. It says this, And one of the Pharisees desired him, that he would eat with him. So he wanted to come and eat with him at his house. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Or the word in the Greek is reclined, right? And that's what they would do. They would recline like a sort of a recliner chair without sides on it. And their heads would be closest to where the meal was served and their feet would be the furthest away. It's probably a good uh, thing to do, right? They thought this through well. And they would sort of lean on one arm on these recliners. And it was not, I mean, this was not fast food, right? (laughs) This was going to take a while. They were going to talk, right? What's good food without good discussion? And so that's what they were doing. Now, a very interesting thing is going on here. Because Jesus is there reclining. And on one hand is Simon. On the other hand, right next to him on the other side, is Lazarus. And so he's got Simon and Lazarus. Now, what is the implications of that? Well, Lazarus, he raised from the dead, right? Four days dead. But Simon was as good as dead, right? He was a leper. Unclean, unclean, unclean. Still ringing through his ears. And so this is what was happening in this scene. Jesus is there. He's been invited, and we'll find in the story here later that the invitee forgot a few things. He was trying to say thank you to Jesus, apparently, Simon the leper, for healing him, because that's what Jesus did. He, as if he raised him from the dead, from the death of leprosy. But for someone who was trying to say thanks, he sure forgot some pretty important elements, like when someone comes to your house, In the Middle East, you don't just go in and sit down. Something happens before. You give them a a kiss, right? And you wash their feet. He did none of these things. So I want you to get this picture. Jesus is there, and he's reclining. And next to him is Lazarus, and next to him is Simon. 
Now, in the day, this was sort of an open courtyard situation. It wasn't a house, you know, a dining room, and there's all these walls, and so it's just this group. No, no, no. Others could could come and, and walk by or even, you know, kind of, you know, peer into the, the, uh, the gathering. And that's exactly what would take place. Verse 37 now. And behold, a woman in that city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat down at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now, the other Gospels fill in the details. It wasn't just a box of ointment, right? It was spikenard, the most precious possible ointment, which could have been sold for 300 denarii or more. And so this was extremely expensive, what Mary had brought. And remember what it represents, the extreme expense of Christ dying for our sins. Amen? That's what it represented, Christ dying, being broken and spilled out for you and for me and for all. Even those who will never respond positively, he died for them. Well, I love the way Elder Robert Wheeland, who actually um, was one of the ones that officiated at um, my wife and I's wed- wedding. We won't say how many years ago that was, but uh, a few years. Um, uh, we're still counting, but you don't need to count, okay? Anyway, <laughs> it was a little while back, but I love the way Elder Wheeland would tell this story about the, the spike nard. In his mind, he saw Mary going into that apothecary, that store to get the spike nard, and, and she just wanted the best for her Savior, right? I mean, that was her faith response. He had healed her from seven demons. And so she went in and said, well, what have you got? I, I, I want to see what you have. I, you know, this is very important. And so, so the store owner said, well, here's one, Mary, for, for 100 denarii that you could take, and, and it would be very good. And I mean, that's a lot of money. I mean, 300 denarii is a year's labor. So this is still a lot, and, and it would be very appropriate. Mary, why don't you take this one for 100? That's still a whole lot of money. And Mary said, well, thank you, but do you have anything better? And he said, well, he says, I I have just a few of these others that these are 200 denarii. That is tremendous. And it's, you know, it's some of the best um, stuff you can buy. It's some of the best I have. And Mary said, I'll take it. But as she's on her way out the door, she looks back and says, store owner, do you have anything better? And he says, wow, I mean, I have one jar of this spikenard, this alabaster box of this spikenard. I mean, I was saving that for possibly an emperor or a king or something. I mean, it's 300 denarii. And I only have one. It's, it's the best from the Himalayan mountains, the best you can find. Um, but surely that's too much, Mary. And Mary said, I'll take it. That's the one that I want, because that is what my Savior is worth to me. I wish I could do more, I'm sure Mary thought. 
But she took it. And this is what she brought to put upon the feet of Jesus. Now, I love what that little book, Desire of Ages, says about this story. It calls it an unstudied act. In other words, she didn't have this all exactly figured out. But that was part of the beauty of it, was the way that it, it came together for her in this situation. Well, this very precious ointment, we don't read it here in Luke, but we read it in the others. In fact, we read it in Matthew in our scripture reading, Joyce. Thank you for that. That the disciples, were they happy or sad about Mary doing this? Sad. (laughs) They were not happy because that could have been given to the poor. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. Matthew is being kind. It just says the disciples But John pinpoints which disciple. Anybody want to guess? Judas, correct. Judas was the one who holds the bag and said, oh, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. I just put it here in my bag. Well, what was he going to do with the bag? (laughs) Some of it was going to go in his pocket, right? It wouldn't have gone to the poor. He didn't care about the poor. It was this deed that got to Judas. And there was nothing Jesus could do. As, as, as tactfully as Jesus had been with Judas, trying to win him, this act of Mary just kind of stung this act of agape. And it wouldn't be long before Jesus would sell, Judas would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And this act just just turned him in a direction. And that's what agape will do, by the way. It will either turn us towards our Savior or against. It's it's catalytic. It's going to, you're not going to stay the same. You're going to go in one direction or another. And unfortunately, Judas had gone the other direction after this amazing act. But she hasn't done it yet. Let's look at verse 38. This is where we see it actually coming into play. Verse 38 says this, verse 38. Jesus stood, sorry, uh, and stood at his feet, Mary standing at his feet weeping. So here's where it kind of all breaks down, right? It's like, she's just so in love with Jesus for what he's done for her. And Martin Luther calls this heart water. I thought that was a great term, heart water. She just starts weeping. She starts weeping. She's thinking of all that she's been through and all that Jesus has done for her and what he's getting ready to go through. And she begins to weep. and began to wash his feet with her tears. And that word wash in the original language means rain. So she's raining tears. Her heart is just just like a, a broken fountain that's just opening up. It's like the dam that finally broke, right? And she's just so appreciative of what her dear Jesus has done for her. Began to wash his feet with her tears. 
Now, he hadn't had the traditional washing that he should have had, but he gets a washing very special, right? With tears as Mary washes his feet with her tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. Now, I want to stop there. So again, picture the scene. She's on her knees at his feet and she, it's as if rain is coming out, heart water is coming out. Her heart is just being poured out. And her long flowing dress would have, been, would have been down there. She could have used that possibly to just wash his feet, but she doesn't. What does she use? Her hair. She takes down her long flowing hair and washes his feet with her hair, with the tears that are flowing. Now, in that day, letting down your hair was a no-no. In fact, in some uh, situations, they would say that was cause for divorce, to let down one's hair in public like that with someone, well, in public in general, but certainly with someone that's not your husband. So there's some things going on here that aren't exactly the norm, shall we say. And of course, you know, you could imagine the other ones at the table are saying, hmm, what's going on here? She's let down her hair. She's, she's crying. And if they hadn't noticed yet, they're getting ready to notice because as you read the rest of the verse, it says this, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so this this tremendously expensive ointment, which represents the tremendous expense for our salvation and the tremendous uh, faith response that we should have to God is being poured out. And now if she wasn't seen before, they know she's there now because everybody can smell this amazing spikenard that was bought at such a precious price. And when it says that she kissed his feet. This wasn't a one-time thing. This is in a continual tense. So she's continually kissing his feet. It's the same tense, the same verb is used in the story of the prodigal son, right? When he comes home and his father just runs to him and hugs him and kisses him, not just once, but again and again and again. Young children, and maybe not so young, have you ever had a mother or a grandmother that would just, you know, I mean, just, you know, just kiss you almost incessantly? That can be annoying at times, right? <laughs> but not in this case. It was so beautiful. The whole deed was so beautiful that Mary had not studied to do. It just came straight from her heart. And so she kissed his feet again and again and anointed them with the ointment. Well now, Simon, the Pharisee, which had bidden him or had asked him to come to eat, saw it and spoke within himself. So he's not saying this out loud. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. Okay, now she's let her hair down and she's touching him. Two no-nos at least. For she is a sinner. 
Now, one point that's sort of a little bit tangential here, off to a side somewhat, but, but I think it's important. We are a church of Bible prophecy. We have a prophetic message, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I would put forth to you that the shaking will never come, Jesus will never come until we have two things. Until we have the agape of Christ in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that prophetic message. Amen? It's got to be both together. You can have love, 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 but if you're you're not pointing people prophetically to what's happening, that's not enough, I would say. And you can have prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Amazing facts until you're blue in the face with facts. But if you have no love, that won't get it done either. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. And he was being... um, They were concerned about his uh, prophetic accuracy because of this agape message that came forward. Very interesting. It's going to be the same with God's people in the last days. But interesting that Simon would have this representation of Mary. She is vile. She is abominable, unclean, unclean. And then maybe it hit him like a leper. I was a leper. That's what people should be saying about me. Verse 40. Jesus answered unto him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Master, teacher, good teacher, say it. Now, check this out. He hadn't said what he, he was just thinking it, right? So Jesus obviously was prophetic and was the Messiah. He's reading the man's, Simon thought he was reading him and no, it was kind of the other way around. Jesus says this, but look at how he deals with him. He deals with him through a parable, right? Parabole. Para means next to, and bole means to throw. So, so you throw this, this, this story next to this spiritual truth that's just too large to get, right? But he's going to throw a story next to it that he knows that he will get. And so that's what he does. And his tact and his kindness with Simon, and he knew more than we know, um, Well, we'll know more than we know right now because I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Simon later. But Jesus had such tact and kindness. Simon, by the way, would end up being a humble follower of Jesus at the end. And part of that was because the way Jesus dealt with his sin and the way Jesus dealt with his attitudes Often we don't deal with things like that, do we? It's, if, if it's with us, we've got lots of room for leeway. Right? <laughs> well, I'm just working through something. But if it's somebody else, it's like, oh. That's somehow the way we do life, but not Jesus. No, no. I want to tell you a story, Simon. Please tell it, Jesus. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. How many debtors? Two And the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave 
them both. Tell me, therefore, which one will love him most? Now, there are some similarities here and there are some dissimilarities between these two creditors. And I want us to look at that briefly here for a moment. They both had the same creditor, did they not? They did. They both owed a debt, i.e. they were debtors. They both could not pay. And they both were forgiven, completely forgiven. Now, when a debtor just forgives and says, okay, you know, no more debt. You know, you got a car payment. I haven't seen your car payment. You know what? That probably means you don't have the money for your car payment. I'm just going to give you your slip. Here it is. Does that happen often? No. <laughs> that would be a pretty cool day. So think about this. When the creditor just forgives, where does that debt come back? The creditor, right? He's got to take care of it. He just said it's gone. And so back to the two robes. You remember this from, one person remembered it from our uh, choir, Liz. Thanks for remembering that. In Zechariah 3, there was a situation where the one robe had to come off, the other had to come on. But I want you to think about it in this context now. This debt, this filth, this abomination, this sin had to be forgiven. And by the way, that word forgiven actually means in this context, it's uh, charizomai. The word grace is in there. It's like you've been graced. So it had to be taken back and taken to who? The creditor. Who's the creditor? Jesus, right? (laughs) God is the one who forgives. He had to take this in order to offer this. The clean, white, spotless robe of his righteousness woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. That's what he offers. But he has to take that. This debt just doesn't go away. He had to pay. And he paid. He paid for us all. And so all of this was the same. They both had the same creditor. They owed a debt. They couldn't pay. They were forgiven. But there was one thing that was different, wasn't it? One owed 50 and one owed 500. And he frankly forgave them both. What is the lesson that he's trying to teach and that we need to learn today? Which would love him most, Simon? Simon didn't just say, well, the one he forgave most. He said, I what? Suppose, I suppose. (laughs) Why did he say it that way? I mean, isn't it kind of obvious that the one he forgave most? So why did he say, I suppose? I wonder if he was beginning to think, if he was beginning to get it, right? I've read several other commentaries and they said, yeah, Mary's the big sinner in this story. And I'm like, no, she's not. She's not. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to show degrees of sinningness. That's probably not a word, but, or sinner. That's not a good word here either. But you know what I'm saying. That wasn't the point here. The point was for Simon to see his own heart 
to see sin for what it really was and righteousness for what it really is and forgiveness. Well, I suppose, I suppose the one to whom he had forgiven the most. And Jesus says, you have rightly judged. You're the judge in the courtroom, Simon. Good verdict. You got it. And then verse 44, as we begin to head towards our close here, he turned to the woman. So now he's turning towards Mary, but he's speaking to Simon. And he said, do you see this woman, Simon? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet and my head with very very precious ointment. Wherefore, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. I don't know what version you have there, but this, this forgiven here is a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a tense in the Greek that we do not have in the English. We have past, present, and future but this is the perfect tense, which includes all three. Her sins have been forgiven. They are forgiven now, and they shall be forgiven. It shall carry on. In the perfect tense, her sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So there is the principle, isn't it? Now, what he's not saying is this, that one was really forgiven little and the other forgiven much per se, right? But one felt as if they were a little sinner. And Mary felt as if she was a great sinner and had such a great debt of love to her Savior. Simon felt as if he was a little sinner. Of course, there's no such thing, right? And so that was the lesson that Jesus was trying to get across not that there is a big sinner and a little sinner, but that we all need to feel the weight of the sins that crushed our Savior on the cross. Now, I've heard people say, well, that's right. Those, you know, people like, I won't give a name, but that have gone through drugs and, you know, alcoholism and everything else. Yeah, once they come to Christ, they're on fire. But what about me, pastor? I haven't done any, I mean, I grew up in the church and I wasn't, I mean, I sort of went off a little bit, but I mean, I'm pretty good, pretty good guy, pretty good gal. How does this relate to me? I mean, I was not crazy like that. Can I somehow love much? And the answer is absolutely yes. You don't have to do all the things that Mary did and be possessed by seven demons. All you have to do is look to the cross of Calvary, Amen and it will break and win your heart. There's no reason that any of us have to go through that to understand that we have been forgiven much, just like Mary, and that we would love much. And Jesus is waiting for a generation in our generation, the last generation that will love much like Mary did. 
and appreciate so much what Christ has done for them. He finishes up by saying this. Again, in verse 48, he says to Mary, he says, your sins are forgiven, have been forgiven. It's in the perfect tense again. And they that sat at meat with him began to say to themselves, who is this? They're beginning to get it. That forgives sins also. And he said to the woman, he said, thy faith has saved you. Go in peace. Shalom. And so that's how the narrative ends. And Jesus says this story must be told wherever the gospel is preached. Nations will rise and fall. Kings and emperors will be remembered and then they'll be forgotten. But not Mary and not the deed that was done there because it represented something. It was an earnest of something much larger. It was an earnest of our heart giving back to Jesus what he deserves. And that's all we have. Take my life. That's all I have, Lord. And let it be. Jesus, in his darkest moments, as he's on the cross, as he can't see through the portals of the tomb, he remembered this deed. He remembered Mary's love. And as he looked at it, he didn't just look at that. He looked at your love down through the ages. He saw through the quarters of time and saw you and your heart response to him. And it cheered his heart. It cheered his heart. Just this one quote, we're closing soon here. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner. This is from this book, Desire of Ages, tremendous in the Hall of Congress is one of the uh, greatest books on the life of Christ. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner, but Christ knew the circumstances that shaped her life. Do you think he knows yours? He might have extinguished every spark of hope in her soul, but he did not do it. It was he who had lifted her from the despair and ruin. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. She had heard his strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive sin was to his unsullied purity. And in his strength, she had overcome. And friend of mine today, you can also in the strength of God. When human eyes, to human eyes, her case appeared hopeless. Christ saw in her capabilities for good. That is the faith of Jesus, amen? It's not seeing the bad in people. It's not ignoring the bad in people either, but it's seeing the capabilities for good. That's what Jesus has done for all of us. He saw the better traits of her character. The plan of redemption has invested humanity with great possibilities. And in Mary, these possibilities would be realized. Through his grace, she became a partaker of the divine nature. The one who had fallen, whose mind had been a habitation of demons, 
was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. It was Mary who sat at his feet to learn. She just couldn't get enough. It was Mary who poured upon his head the precious anointing oil. Mary who was beside the cross. Mary who was the first to the tomb. And Mary the first to proclaim a risen Savior. Now, got to get this. If you haven't gotten anything, tune in just for a minute here. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. That's you. That's me. He knows all of the circumstances. You may say, I am sinful. Very sinful. You may be. But the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. Come on and say amen if that's good news. He turns no weeping, contrite one away. He does not tell to any all that he may reveal. Oh, what tact, what kindness Jesus used in dealing with people. But he bids every trembling soul to take courage freely. Will he pardon all who come to him for forgiveness and restoration? Christ might commission right now the angels of heaven to pour out the vials of his wrath upon the world, to destroy those who are filled with hatred of God. He might wipe this dark spot from the universe. That's not what he does. <laughs> it's not who he is, but he does not do this. He is today standing at the altar of incense, presenting before God the prayers of those who desire his help. The souls that turn to him for refuge, Jesus lifts above the accusing strife of tongues. Ever been accused? Jesus can lift you above it. Ever been taken advantage of by one who should be taking care of you? Well, that may have happened in this case of Simon because commentaries and commentators tell us that it was he himself that led her into this sin. Simon had led her in to this sin. He bids every trembling soul to take courage. Freely he will pardon all who come to him. The soul that turns to him for refuge, Jesus lifts above strife and the accusations of tongues. No man or evil angel can impeach these souls. Oh, what a savior we have today. He unites them to his own divine human nature. Now they are in Christ. They stand beside the great sin bear in the light proceeding from the throne of God. Who shall charge anything to God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? Not Christ. Christ died. Yea, rather, is risen again, is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Well, I'm not going to make an altar call, but we can all sing this song as if our hearts mean it. Amen? Take my life and let it be. 
And I'm going to have a prayer, and then Grant is going to play that for us. Thanks, Grant, for coming. And one of the, there's Chuck there now. But let's, let's pray before we close, shall we? Oh, Father God, what a story. What a true narrative from your word, and what meaningful, deeply meaningful representation it has, not just for Mary, but for us, Lord, please. Help us to realize that we have been forgiven much, that we are great sinners, and that we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, help us to go forward understanding that agape and giving ourselves as a free offering, as a drink offering upon a thirsty world, Lord, for many do not understand this agape. Lord, there may be those here within the hearing of my voice that have been downcast or maybe thinking that, oh, I don't know, you know, if Christianity's for me or if this is gonna work and how can Jesus forgive me? I'm such a terrible sinner. Lord, we're so grateful that we have such a wonderful savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Come to the side of each one just now through your Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Please take us, make us like Mary, one who is willing to give all and to even be embarrassed for you if you might be lifted up and glorified. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.